Hello, friends. This is Rick Thomas, and you're listening to the Life Over Coffee podcast. This is this is going to be a wonderful podcast for you to listen to. I had a lady from Lebanon reach out to me. Her name is Joyce Sadi. She's a biblical counselor in Lebanon, and as many of you have heard there was a bomb blast that went off in Beirut on August the 4th, 2020. Well, this is not quite one week later, and she reached out to us wanting to talk to me about trauma. And so this podcast is about trauma, which applies to all of us because we all have suffered in certain ways. But she is a biblical counselor in Lebanon. She is currently living in the UK with her husband, who's studying for his PhD. But she has a ministry back in Lebanon, and she hopes to go back there real soon. And so she talked, she wanted to ask me some questions about trauma. And so we did that. And I want you to listen to this interview. I have some links that will reach you, uh, get you out to her website in Arabic. Also the first 30 seconds or so, she's introducing me in Arabic. So that will be fun for you to listen to. Uh, and also, let me say one other thing before we jump into this. If you would like to interview me about a subject that is important to you and your ministry, just please let me know. But this is Joyce Sadi from Beirut, Lebanon, via the UK. We're talking about trauma. Here we go. Marhaba. قصص يمكن براكتيكال او قصص حتى روحيا كيف بدنا نجاوب ففي شخص ريك توماس كثير بحب خدمته فيكم تقروا عنه اكثر بروك ريك توماس دوت نت هو عمل مثل ويب سايت اللي بيحكي فيه في كثير ارتكلز تقروها بودكاست تسمعوها سو عندي كثير اسئله لاساله اياها عن كيف نحن نتعامل بهيك وضع مع اولادنا كيف نحن نهتم بحالنا لنقدر نحن نهتم باولادنا سألت بعض الأهالي وأسئلة لشوف هني كمان شو بحبوا يسألوا نحن بدنا نحكي مع ريك هلا إن شاء الله تكون هيدي الانترفيو لبنيان لبنياننا لتشجعنا وتخلينا هيك نتذكر رجائنا الأبد بالمسيح أول شيء لسلم على ريك ناطرني بالعربي هاي ريك Oh, hello, Joyce. How are you? I, I thank you for having me on uh, the video. I did not realize that I could speak Arabic. I heard you say Rick Thomas. I heard you say articles and podcast and website. So I didn't realize I could speak Arabic. So I'm very yeah, yeah. That's good. That's good. I'm encouraged. So thank you again you for having Lebanon, me. Thank you. When you come to Lebanon, son, you can use these words. You know, you make people understand what you're saying. Thank you for joining and thank you for being generous enough of your time. Uh, to listen to our questions. Um, I spoke to a lot of uh, moms in Lebanon after the blast that happened, and um, they all have questions. I have questions. I'm not in Lebanon at the moment, but the pain and the fear and the sadness that has affected all of us because of it is, is huge. And I'm sure the people in Lebanon at the moment are also going through a lot of, a lot of unknowns, a lot of pain. Because there doesn't seem to be any way out. Right. Um, so we have a lot of questions. Uh, but I want to start at the beginning with what we call trauma or what we call suffering. Um, how do we define what happened? Um, and how do we see it in our children and in, our, in ourselves? Yes, uh, there's several questions there. And the first one, you know, what 
what is trauma or is trauma real? Trauma is real, uh, e- even if we don't label it as such. Uh, trauma is something that happens to us. It's an event that happens. Um, but the, the best way to think about trauma is to think of it as a, a basket word. Because trauma in itself, it, it has several different iterations or different ideas that are connected to it and so if you're helping someone who is going through trauma what you want to do is to get inside of this big word and and see some of the effects of trauma for example if there was a word cloud around the word trauma one of the words that you would see would be fear Uh, that is a part of trauma you would see worry you would see anxiety anxiousness anger uh, is also would be connected to trauma. And so trauma in itself uh, can just be a, a big word that I'm not sure how to describe, but then when you start breaking down into a more granular level, you begin to see these little indicators like fear, worry, anxiety, even jealousy and envy, for example, for people who are not going through what I am going through, or anger would be definitely a part of trauma. Numbing uh, would be grief would be another word uh, that would be connected to trauma. So if you put all of these words together, if you said that uh, I have a person who is fearful and anxious and worry and grieving and envious and 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 angry uh it sounds to me like they've been traumatized by something and so a lot of times it's better to break the word down into specific categories in order to understand what the larger word is wow well if it's if it's all that happening at once and to kind of a whole country at the same time right so if something happens to me but did not happen to the other person then Maybe that other person can help me. But if we're all right. in this together, then, you know, how, how does that work? Well, we're both all, of- We're all angry. We're all bitter. We're all jealous. We're all numb, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, both of, both of those individuals can help the sufferer. Uh, the person who's not affected by it uh, can help because they're not emotionally entangled in the effect of what is going on and so i think most of us understand you know like someone coming to an event a tragedy from the outside and bringing care they're they don't bring the emotional baggage as far as being affected by it in an acute way like the victims of the trauma okay so that makes sense for those of us who are in it at the same time, what you're going to see is there are different levels of maturity, different levels of responses. And so you really want to identify, I mean, the leaders will rise up and they just have a leadership gift and they're able uh, to be able to rise up and to bring care. One of the things about suffering, um, suffering requires leadership. Uh, without, I mean, you have to lead yourself through suffering. Some people can do that and some people can't, but suffering and leadership actually go hand in hand in order to suffer well. Uh, But unfortunately, uh, for whatever reason, it's hard for everyone to suffer well. 
but some people can. They have the ability. Maybe they have been a believer much longer. Maybe they have had more teaching and training in God's Word. Maybe they have a personality that is in such a way that they just naturally can take charge in a good sense of that word. And so they know how to suffer well. They can lead themselves through the agony that they're going through. And of course, they can lead others as well. And so it would be critical when everyone is collected in the tragedy and they're all traumatized by it, those leaders will begin to rise up and you want to identify them and and mobilize them so that they can care. Uh, Jesus, for example, in the Garden of Gethsemane was the one most traumatized because he was the he was the epicenter of everyone's anger, everyone's rage, everyone's desire to kill him. And so he was the epicenter. But what you see in that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, his leadership to where he's, tell, he's leading Peter. Peter, put up your sword. He's actually leading his friends. And you, you, you'll see that with some people. Everybody suffers. And so there's no other option in a fallen world. We all suffer. But there are some people that have a level of gifting or experience or maturity or ability, whatever words we want to use. And so they can suffer more effectively. And, of course, Jesus is an example of that. Another illustration of that, I'll just give you one more. In John 11, uh, when Lazarus uh, was dying and did die eventually, Mary and Martha and Jesus were suffering. We know that Jesus was suffering because he wept in John eleven thirty five, And so he carried the burden and the agony and the pain, uh, as well as Mary and Martha. But what we saw with Mary and Martha, we saw their impatience. We saw their anger. We saw their frustration. We saw their worry. We saw their anxiety. Again, those are some of the component parts in a trauma that was happening, and the trauma in their situation was their brother was dying. Well, Jesus was affected by it as well, but yet he did not respond the way they did, and so that's the person that you want to identify uh, so they can lead, and of course, Jesus led so effectively through that trauma event that even the Jews who were standing by, they were affected by how Christ not only loved Lazarus, but also how he uh, managed that event. So that would be another illustration of leadership through suffering. Yeah. Rick, how can I, I love that you gave the example of Jesus to look at Jesus. How can I, what can I learn from Jesus? You know, you said leadership, uh, you know, and I loved how you put these two together. Um, if I as a mom or as the father or I as a pastor at the moment, um, I'm start. I'm trying to um, to stand up on my feet and and then help others. When I look to Jesus, what do I need to to remember um, that's going to help me stand up and serve others during this time? Yeah, that's. Uh, I I love the question, and I will frame it specifically um, from the angle of a mom. Because moms, in normal situations, moms suffer. Uh, being a mom, as you know, you are. It's a 
obligation, responsibility, opportunity, privilege, uh, but it's hard. Yeah. And, and so there is a level, let's just say a low-grade level of suffering that just runs under the surface of your life all the time because being a mom is a very hard job. And so you carry suffering with you. You're setting aside sleep. You're setting aside desires that you may have for the day, but they have been interrupted because of the neediness of this child or this crying event or this sibling argument that just happened. And so moms are always living very vigilant and always aware of what is going on around the home and their children's lives. And so that in itself is an element of suffering. But at the same time, somebody has to be the adult in the room. And so that has to be the mom. And so she has this dual role. Uh, and, and one of the to going back to Christ in Philippians 2, it talked about he, he set aside and he became human. Uh, we call that the hypostatic union where he was 100% God, but yet he was 100% man. And we see this setting aside, not just him coming here uh, for the salvation of souls, but he was always setting aside which, as I illustrated earlier in John 11 with Mary and Martha, or in uh, Luke, I think, 22 with the Garden of Gethsemane, that he was setting aside. And so the mom has to, she wants to model Christ that way by setting aside her desires, her wants, for the greater good of what's going on in the situation at the moment. Now, yeah. uh, now, there's a level of humility there, uh, which is important, and that reminds me of uh, James 4, 6, where James says God gives grace to the humble, and I like to define grace there as empowering favor. It, God, God gives us empowering favor. He gives us grace for that moment, and for the mother in the illustration that I'm using here, she has this desire to honor the Lord. She wants to walk with Christ. And, of course, walking with Christ, as Peter told us in uh, chapter 2, verse 21, that we are to walk in his steps. And so as we walk in the suffering steps of our Savior, that is an act of humility. Well, God gives grace to the humble. And so as this mother wants to honor Christ, she wants to walk in humility, she can expect, she should expect, empowering favor. She should expect grace to be able to bear up under that circumstance. And there are so many moms that say, yes, amen. This was very hard to do. This is not the day that I wanted. This is not the season that I wanted. But I wanted to honor my Lord. And, and sure enough, God just gave me grace in that moment to persevere through that situation. And what you will find is there's a circular effect there. You humble yourself before the Lord. 
God empowers you in that moment. You step out in faith and do what you know to do, setting aside your desires or wants or wishes or whatever. And then you see God act through you, and then that begins to build a a God-centered confidence. So now you can do it again, and you have that circular effect, and eventually it becomes a, a habit. Now, the opposite of that is also true. Uh, the mother, in this illustration, her children are doing children things, as we all know that they can do, and she, does, she doesn't respond in humility. She doesn't want to honor the Lord in that moment, and she responds in anger, or, or she becomes part of the meltdown process. Well, that too can become a habit as well, because that can become circular too. Yeah, and it affects the children, I think, more and more. And it's it's good to rem- to remember what you said about being humble, and uh, you used you know God empowering us, and you used the word you said you talked about grace. But a lot of time we're tempted not to believe it because the world outside says, "I have to take care of me," you know, "I have to be okay," and then the others, you know, the you know, I take care of everybody else. And it's good to remember and to trust the Lord that when uh, when we actually do humble ourselves and it's not about, you know, some people think it's about just where it's like, I can do it, I can do it, you know, and you push yourself more, you push and then you eventually blow up. And that's not what we're talking about. It's about humbling ourselves. And when we humble ourselves, we are acknowledging that we cannot do it. We're asking God to help by His grace and His empowerment. And that's a key, it's a key idea in... I do want to make a point here to what you are saying because at the point of trauma, we have a decision to make. And the decision really is is this, am I going to rely on myself or am I going to rely on the Lord? If I rely on myself, I will go this direction. If I rely on the Lord, I'm going to go this direction. And so those are two different directions. And this tension that all of us have in our souls is as old as Adam and Eve. And so in Genesis 3, 6, the devil put this opportunity before Adam and Eve. And they had the opportunity or the decision to make to rely on themselves. And they could be godlike by eating the fruit. Or they could trust and do what God said to do and rely on him. And of course, we know the we know what they did, and we know the direction that they took. And so, when tragedy comes or trauma like what happened in Beirut last Tuesday is just unbelievable. It's just catastrophic. But we also have those little events like with the mom with the children melting down. But in all of those moments, the common theme is, what am I going to do at this moment? Because that will set the course for everything else that happens. And so if I choose to take things into my own hands, um, yeah, I will probably use anger, for example, because anger becomes a weapon Mm -hmm. in order to accomplish something. And so for the mother... Uh, she learns to use anger to get her children to stop whatever they're doing. And what she's doing, she's manipulating the children to be able so that she could have this artificial shalom in the home. 
but it's just artificial because it was manipulated. And, of course, it won't work in the long term because eventually the children will become 13 and 14 and 15, and you won't be able to manipulate them any longer, so your self-reliant efforts will eventually break down and blow back on you. But then trusting the Lord uh, is a counterintuitive way. Mm -hmm. In fact, Paul would say it's foolish and it's weak. In 1 Corinthians 1, you remember 18 through 25, that Christ dying on the cross seems foolish and weak, but actually it is the wisdom of God and the power of God. Mm -hmm. And so what anger seems to be strong and wise, but actually it's not. Submitting and following God appears to be foolish and weak. Actually, it's not. That is the way to go. But we, ha- but the, the tension is right in that moment. Am I going to rely on myself or am I going to rely on the Lord? Yeah. Rick, what, do you, what would you say to the, to the sufferer who is saying, I've relied on God enough and it didn't get me anywhere? Meaning, um, they just sound like words, very nice words. You know, trust the Lord, rely on the Lord. Um, you know, and then life is, you know, is hard from all around. And and some people are, you know, are kind of starting to get hopeless. These are very nice words, you know, very poetic, sentimental. But they actually don't know. They haven't maybe seen or forgot what it means to actually live by these words and for these words to really make a difference in their life. So things like rely on the Lord, you know. Like, well, maybe I like, how? Yeah, well, that's a legitimate complaint. Uh, I think many people, if <clears throat> not all of us, have, have said that. And I know I've said that before. Um, and, and almost all, all times is tied to an expectation yeah. of a certain kind of life that I want. Um, yeah. For example, I've, I've had two brothers who have been murdered, uh, you know, 10 years apart. And my expectation is very legitimate. I want them to live. I want this brother to live. I want this brother to live. That's my expectation. Not only is that my expectation, but I am a Christian. And so, yeah, God is good. God is great. I trust the Lord. I walk with Jesus. I believe the Bible. I do all those poetic things. And my brothers die. They're murdered 10 years apart. And so now I have to begin to think through this idea of expectations and in reality and the world that I live and what is God what what is God's purpose versus what is my purpose and these are worldview uh, shaping questions and so the text that I was referring to earlier that I did not mention was 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 where Paul told the Corinthians he said I don't want you to be ignorant of the suffering that we experienced in Asia you could very well translate that or, or, or apply that and say, I don't want you to be ignorant of the suffering that we're going through in Lebanon. 
Uh, Paul told them, I don't want you to be unaware. I want you to be informed about why we are going through this suffering. And this suffering, he says in the text, uh, in fact, he says that uh, the suffering was so great that we were burdened beyond our strength. Uh, we were burdened beyond our ability to rectify the situation. That's what a lot of people are saying. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant of this, because you could look at this suffering that we are experiencing in, in Asia, and, and you could think, poor Paul, or, you know, I don't understand what's going on, but he says, I want to bring clarity to the suffering that we're going through in Asia. And he says that it is God who is teaching us not to rely on ourselves, but to rely on him who raises the dead. And so God's view of suffering and our view of suffering are, can be two different worldviews. And so the first thing that I had to do in the, the trauma event both times with my brothers, those tragedies, is I had to go back and re-clarify, you, you know, what are my expectations, what is God doing uh, what is the purpose of, of this? And I found that there, there was, I needed, to, I needed to learn more about God. I needed to understand that His greater purposes are higher than this kind of life that I want to live. And what happens so often is that's very hard for us to do. We live on earth. We eat food, drink water, talk to humans. We drive automobiles and live in apartments and homes and so forth and so on. And so we're very terrestrial in our lives. But God has a greater purpose in our lives than just eating and drinking and and so forth. And and Jesus talked about this in uh, Matthew 6, where he says that, you know, the Gentiles pursue all of these things. They have all these expectations. But our job is to pursue the kingdom of God because we have a greater purpose. And so I found that the world that I lived in and the greater purposes of God were somewhat colliding because my expectations of what I want were not being met, and I was frustrated at God. But as I began to understand that God was teaching me not to rely on my own expectations, not to rely on my own desires, but get on the page with Him and try to discern what He is doing, that actually what happened is that God turned the suffering into redemption and the short story of that is, is that this ministry, for example, was born out of those tragedies. And so today, oh, let's just take this illustration right here. Today, I'm talking with a lady in the UK who's from Lebanon, who is helping people in Lebanon. That was born out of a tragedy yeah. in 1987. And 1997, they were 10 years apart. And so when I began to understand that, that God can use sin sinlessly mm. as the gospel is, there's two ways of looking at Jesus dying on the cross. As Peter said in Acts 2, he says, you put him to death, and that is accurate. We put him to death. But he also said in Isaiah 53, uh, verse 10, that it was the will of God to crush him. And so we live in this tension where people do bad things, 
but God is not outside of those bad things, that he can use that sin event for a greater purpose. And of course, the most profound illustration of that is Jesus dying on the cross. Another illustration, as you very well know, is the story of Joseph in Genesis 37 through 50. His brothers did something evil. It's similar to what Peter was saying. You know, you put him to death. His brothers did something evil. But Joseph was so God-centered that he knew that God was orchestrating something. And so as he said in 5020, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And so we live in this parallel of, of human suffering and, and, and God's sovereign activity in our lives. And if we flip the parallel around to where suffering is the main thing, and God is a a small player, a small actor, then the suffering will dominate our thinking, our thoughts, and even our responses and reactions to the suffering. But if we live as Joseph did, where both of these things are true, I am suffering, it is painful, I don't like it, it hurts, there are consequences, but I know that God is actively working in my life, and that's the story of how this ministry was started. At first, the pain and the suffering was far greater, and God was a, a sideline actor. But as I began to change my view of suffering and sovereignty, I began to see, no, God is doing something. It's mysterious. I do not know what it is. Uh, but as my hope and trust in Him began to grow, this began to flip around, and it set a new trajectory for my life. Amen. Um, Rick, how do we... Like when you're sharing this, I'm thinking there's a lot of kind of, again, thinking that if if somebody's suffering, you know, we, ju we just need to listen. You know, if you try to give some hope, if you try to encourage, maybe convict, maybe, you know, say, you know, just remind people of truth, then that is kind of starting to be labeled as, you know, you're being insensitive, not just the time to listen. And I've seen a lot of my friends saying, now, now it's not the time to pray. Now it's not the time to preach. It's just, you know, the time to weep. And, uh, you know, there is, I'm sure there is a lot of truth in, in listening to the sufferer and in weeping with the sufferer. But uh, it's as if, you know, it's as if this is the ultimate thing to do. And if, you know, if you try to give some hope, you're being insensitive, you don't understand. Where's the balance? How can we listen to each other, weep with each other and cry? with each other, and when should we be reminding ourselves of the truth and without them clashing as if the truth is just unrealistic or it's not the time for it? When's the time for it, if not now? Well, uh, <clears throat> both things are true at the same time. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's actually, a, it's more like a sequence of things that have to happen, and it's different with each person. And so, uh, many years ago, my friend, uh, he and his wife, their baby was born, their baby died within a few days. And I went to their home to visit, and I knew that it wasn't a time to talk. And so I knocked on the door, and Randy, my friend, came to the door, and I just held him. And we both cried. There are times when words aren't helpful, mm -hmm. 
But as you intuitively know, there are times when words are needful. And so there's, there's, a, there's a sequence, you know, so it's, it's not one or the other that's competing, but there's a process that you want to lead into. And so in Ezekiel 3.15, it says that uh, Ezekiel went down by the river Chebar and he sat where they sat. And, and we also see this with Job's friends, by the way. I mean, the first few days, uh, they did very well. They didn't, they didn't open their mouths. And they just sat with him. And, and so that is appropriate uh, in the beginning. The sequence that I like to be able to govern my own heart uh, is like when tragedy happens, the first thing is quiet. Um, you just want to be quiet. You want to be quiet personally or like in Ezekiel's case, you just go sat, you sit where they sat and, and, and you're, you're quiet because you you have to settle i mean your soul needs to settle uh you it's it's you can't process there is a numbing effect we talked about earlier you know in this basket of trauma numbing is is in that there there's there's also mystery inside that basket as as well and so we're trying to process and we want to follow James's advice in 119 where he said you know be slow to speak and and quick to listen. And so there's some wisdom in being quiet. And so as the caregiver, I mean, first of all, I I just want to be quiet. And then the second thing in this sequence is uh, I I want to pray. And so the talking that I do is vertical, not horizontal. And so my soul is quiet or being quiet because you know there's just so much noise going on and it's hard to talk to god when there's all this chaotic noise going on inside that's the purpose of being quiet and so now the room quietens down and now i talk to god and i'm just trying to understand and in Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine, it says that there's mystery here. There's things that are revealed to us. There are things that are not revealed to us. I have to become comfortable living in the mystery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so with what happened in, in, in Beirut uh, last week, there is an element of mystery there. But if you just launch into talking, and, and you, you, you're still chaotic yourself, and you haven't spent time talking to the Lord, yeah, you could be very inappropriate. You could miss what needs to be said. And so that's why this sequence is so important. And so my, the noise in the room and my own soul goes down. I spend time talking to God, just wrestling with what in the world is going on? What are you doing? <laughs> what is your purpose in this? And then the third step, if you use four in this sequence, is to believe, Mm. faith, hope. These are synonyms to trust, believe, hope, confidence, God-centered confidence. But, But just, okay, so my soul is quiet. I've been talking to the Lord. I know 
that God is working here. I don't know. I don't have all the answers, but now, now I'm stepping out in faith. Now, Peter was, we, we, we fuss at Peter because he was maybe the worst at this. He tend to just launch out uh, without doing these things. Jesus, before a lot of events, you see this, I, I illustrated with the Garden of Gethsemane, he's going to the cross, but yet he, he goes out to the garden with his group, but then he goes a, a little farther and he prays. And so he's getting his heart in tune with God, which really mobilized him to, to know what to say and how to say when he came back when things really intensified. And so you see the quietening of the soul, the talking to God, and now you are bolstered in your faith, which is number three, believe. So quiet, talk, uh, quiet, pray, believe. And then number four, you act. Then you act. And you remember where Jesus, you know, he said that I'm going to send you into this town. They said, what shall we say? He said, don't worry about what to say in that moment. The Spirit of God will give you words to say in that moment. And you as a counselor, you know this to be so true when you're sitting in front of someone and you don't know what they're going to say to you, uh, but you you just step out in faith and because you believe. You believe that God's Word is sufficient. You believe that God has an answer for this person. You have spent time praying, and so you're really, now you're ready to act, but you're not acting first. You're acting last. And so what you have to do is you measure each person that you're, you're in front of. And, and some people just need a, they just need for you to hold them. Some people need encouragement. Some people just need physical, they just need food and water. Mm. They, they need a physical act which is also appropriate as we see in Matthew 25 when you do when you where did we see you naked where did we see you hungry where did we see you thirsty uh, when you do this to them you've done this to me and sometimes just giving a cup of water or giving bread in the name of Christ a physical act but you would know you'll be more in tune to what to do what to say the fourth part the act part you'll be more in tune in what to do what to say if your, your own soul is less chaotic. You spent time talking to the Lord, and you're now operating from a position of faith, and then the Lord will give you the appropriate words. Because sometimes what you are suggesting, and it happens so often, we just launch in and we say something like, all things work together for good to those who love God. And that sounds very poetic, and it's, it's biblically accurate, but is that the thing that we want to say right now? Well, if we haven't spent time before the Lord adjusting ourselves, then, yeah, we can say and do things that may be right, but not right for that person or that context. Or the right time. Yeah, and that's what a lot of uh, parents have been saying. I think they didn't have the time to calm down and sit in front of the Lord, you know, to for that chaos inside of them at least to calm down. And then, you know, these parents or these moms, they still have to cook lunch and play with the kids and entertain the kids right. and watch TV and look at the news at the same time. So it's just like there's a lot of boiling up. So that's a good reminder. 
And that's that that's that uh, leadership and suffering. Yeah, we were talking about earlier. Going back to the mom thing, she's the the, the world's greatest multitasker, yeah. and I think you just listed about four or five: watching the news, cooking the meal, changing the diaper, I'm you know, processing. just processing at the same time. Yeah, um, if you know, if our kids are the our, our first ministry. They are, you know, the first thing. These are the kids around us. They have heard the blast. They're scared as well. Um, you know, a lot of parents are asking, how do we talk to them about it? They've heard the blast. They're asking, they've seen, you know, some of, you know, they know the, the damage that has happened. They've heard that people have died. A lot of uh, moms have asked, what do we do about death? Do we tell them honestly? Or do we lie to them about it? Do we hide it? Um, and should we be worried when asked, should we be worried that they would hate God if you say, you know, God is in control, but then these people have died. How do, how do you advise parents to talk to their kids about about death and stuff. yeah uh i wouldn't frame it in uh truth and lie uh i would frame it as motive of the heart okay um jesus told jesus said in mark 8 that there are many things that i would like to tell you but you're not able to bear them now and so jesus withheld the truth but we would not say that he lied. Yeah. Uh, and so that's why I wouldn't frame it as truth versus lie. I would frame it as motive of the heart. What is the motivation of your heart to talk or not to talk? And so if my motive of the heart is to hurt you, for example, with my words, well, that's a sinful motive. If my motive of my heart is to you know, care for you, that's a, a, a biblical Christian motive. And so if the mother's motivation, her motive of the heart is to help the child, well, then that's going to guide, you know, what she says or what she doesn't say. Let me give you another illustration away from this trauma. When your child, your four-year-old comes to you and says, mama, where do babies come from? Mm. Are you going to have the sex talk with a four-year-old child? Mm. No. And so your motivation is not to lie, but you also know that this is not the time. Uh, going back to what Jesus told Peter, there's many things. This is what you would say um, to your child. There's many things that I would like to tell you now, but you're not able to bear them. And so what you do is that your, again, motive of the heart is to love and care and teach and train and speak truth to but you have to sculpt the truth according to the ability of the child to bear and process and handle the truth. Now, you also, again, as a counselor, you know this very well. You're meeting with someone, and there might be a lot of things that you want to tell them, but you know that it's not appropriate to tell them at this point. And again, that goes back to the motive of the heart. Is your motive to be deceptive? No, your motive is to be redemptive. And so a redemptive motivation of the heart will govern what you say, when you say, how you say, why you say. And so within a family, for example, you will have, if you have multiple children, well, you'll have multiple ages, okay? And, and then e even if they were all grouped 
at three, four, and five years of age, unless they're about the same age, even within that, you would have different personalities. And so you will have one child who tends to fear more, tends to be more anxious, tends to be a worrier. Well, what you would say to that one would be different than, say, that was the five-year-old, but the four-year-old you could talk more plainly to, even though they are younger. And so it takes discernment to know what to say to the child. And so there's no scripted, like I, what I would not do here is to give you a script or anyone mm-hmm. because they would just take that script and hear. And so each parent, and I'm a parent, I, I call those pneumatic moments, pneumatos, walking in the spirit, being spirit led. And so you ask the Spirit of God to illuminate your mind, give me insight into this child. And only the dad and only the mom know the know that child. I, I would I would not know what to say yeah. to your child like you would because you just you know all their quirks, you know all their personality, little their their weirdness, you know their strengths, you know their weaknesses, and you know that this child, I need to really craft this in such a way. And again, the whole point is not to lie, but is to be redemptive to the child. And then if you have an older child, uh, you can say more, not only say more, but you can uh, also equip that child to help, you know, uh, with the, the smaller ones to help, and, and, and they can uh, run recogni- reconnaissance for you. You know, If you hear or as you interact with your siblings, uh, because this child's at a more mature level, and so because what you're doing is raising up disciples, and so this older child is a more mature disciple maker, and you want to deploy them into disciple making, which they can do within the, you know, within the family context. And so every family is different. The ages are different. The personalities are different. And so it would depend. But the big thing is, it's not truth or lies. It's the motivation of your heart. And so in the, in the Gospels, uh, we call this the, um, the Messianic, um, uh, oh, I, if it, it, it's a theological teaching, the Messianic secret. I don't think that's the right terminology. My memory is failing me now, but uh, Jesus withheld uh, who he was. And, and even when he did tell, finally told them in Mark 8, you know, Peter just went off on him and mm-hmm. rebuked him. But Jesus held it, held it, held it, held it, held it, because he knew it's just not going to work right now. And to finally he got to the point near the cross where he had to you know, finally tell them and then walk them through that. And so there at some point, and so with the children, you can't hide the reality of what's going on or what happened in Beirut. Uh, you, you can't hide it completely, uh, but again, how you communicate it. And, and you want to communicate it in faith. And so that goes back to what I was saying earlier. If you just speak, you know, without quieting your own soul without talking to God, without stepping out in faith, you'll just be talking and you won't be well guided by the Lord. And so following this sequence would be important. Yeah. 
um, some parents said that the kids have asked questions and the parents have replied, but they've noticed that the kids are, they keep asking, they, they ask again and the parents are replying again and then they keep asking. So the question is, we you know, why are the, the, you know, we've explained once, twice, three times, four times, and the kids are, you know, keep asking, do you think that's part of, that's the trauma, that's part of, you know, the, they're, the, the kids are trying to process or, you know, is it just the parents' questions and answers were not sufficient enough? And so they need, maybe that means a child needs to, uh, needs to know more or wants to know more, or is it is that a normal part of process, processing? Yeah, it could be uh, all of that. And it could be that, you know, uh, they're hearing the news, they could be hearing the news or maybe peer group, you know, they're talking about it uh, because what's happening is that this is not uh, a one-and-done event with no residual effect. Uh, and even going out, if they go outdoors, uh, if they're within the blast area, uh, so they see it, they smell it, uh, it's talked about, they see it on the news. And so even though the event happened in a moment, uh, it's going to take a long time uh, for Beirut, and, and also because of the pandemic, uh, there was this. Uh, there were struggles and tensions before yeah. uh, the blast, and the blast is unrelated, seemingly, you know, to this other thing that's happening to all of us. And so there's there's an ongoing weight and pressure, and mystery and questions that are just lingering. And so it would be normal one answer. Um, so let's say, no, let's say you're counseling a, a wife who is in a manipulative, difficult marriage, and she comes to you on Tuesday, and, you know, my husband is a bad person, and he does this, 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 and this, and help me. And you answer her questions. The next week, she comes. Her husband hasn't changed. And so she has maybe the same questions or another set of questions that are very similar to the last questions. Why is she asking these questions again? Because her life hasn't changed. Yeah. And so these children are, are living under an event that's not going to change for a long time. And so one and done conversations, one and done answers to a question, uh, it doesn't work in counseling. It won't work in this situation. It doesn't work. So that's, it's very normal. Um, and, and so the parent wants to just not be impatient. Mm -hmm. And it's important because sometimes, so if the counselor is impatient with this woman, now we're four weeks, four sessions, and we're kind of talking about the same thing, but that's because her life hasn't changed. And you become impatient with her, well, she might stop asking, and she may go somewhere else you know, to ask her questions because her questions aren't going away because her problem isn't going away. And so the parent or in the illustration of the counselor, they need to be in tune of what's going on here. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good reminder that 
you know, as parents, we say, you know, we want to solve an issue. I think it's like it's a, it's a problem instead of thinking of the child as a person with feelings. Right. right. And they're going to process it. So we need to be patient with them and keep repeating and keep listening because it's actually, like you said, it's a, it's a process. It's, an, it's not just a one-time event. And we can just um, just speak about it and, you know, wish our kids just understood and left. Uh, one last question concerning kids that a parent has asked. During a time of trouble or, you know, things, just exactly what the Lebanese people are going through now, do we, this, you know, they ask, do we allow kids more grace now to disobey or to have tantrums? Uh, you know, because it's a difficult time because, you know, they, you know they're, they're scared too and this is how they're expressing. So let them express, let them have their tantrums, let them scream. How do we deal with issues like this? Is that the way to, to parent during a time like this? What do we do? Yeah, uh, part of that depends on the child. Um, and so uh, let me illustrate. Uh, I have a child who is a, a, a brooder, uh, meaning if, if that child is sinning and you went and said, you need to stop sinning, <laughs> it's not going to happen because this child has to process and really work through whatever's going on in their mind, and we've and we've talked about this openly. And, and this child would say, "Yes, Daddy, I'm I'm a brooder, and you know, if I'm sinning, and you say you need to repent, it's not going to happen." And I know that the child knows that, and so it's not realistic because of the personality of this child. And so, but thirty minutes later. Or maybe two hours later, uh, depending on what happened, we can talk through it. The child will, you know, ask for forgiveness, etc., and we're done with it. And then there's another child that you know I can talk to. You know, this is wrong, whatever. You know, you just you need to confess this. You need to ask for forgiveness. We need to work this out, and it can happen somewhat right there, and, and it, it has no residual effect. And so that's part of the answer is that you have to understand, like, we don't do cookie-cutter counseling. We don't do cookie-cutter parenting. And just like communicating or answering the questions that we were talking about earlier is different from child to child, age to age, personality to personality. Well, that's a part of it. And then there's another aspect that, you know, we talk about in the Bible of overlooking an offense, uh, what you don't want to do is just, you know, you sin, boom, you sin, boom, you sin, boom. After a while, uh, in uh, Ephesians, it talks about exasperating a child. You can exasperate the child because it's boom, boom, boom. And so you need to pick and choose, you know, what do I need to talk about? And and those are, are spirit-informed, spirit-illuminated uh, understanding your child, now we need to work through this, but I'm going to overlook the other five things and just let that go because I understand in this context. Uh, and so there's this interplay, you know, that's going on uh, between the parent and the child, and the parent needs to really activate wisdom as to I, I can't get every wrinkle out of this garment. Uh, but I've got to choose which is the important one. Now, tied to that, 
you want to make sure, or we want to make sure, that we are encouraging our children. Uh, Paul said in uh, Romans 2, 4, that don't you know that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance? The kindness of God we see on the cross, that is the kindness of God that motivates us to repentance. And we don't want to condemn our children into repentance or or get angry our children into repentance or to yell at our children into repentance or to manipulate our children into repentance or to make fun of our children into repentance. But the kindness of God leads to repentance. And so the way that we talk about it in our home, it's like a 10 to 1 ratio. Uh, For every one critique, there needs to be 10 encouragements. It's kind of a rule of thumb. Now what that means is, is that that there is just this wafting encouragement, that aroma in the home. And you can think about it like this. Um, you, you put $10 in the bank for every dollar that you take out. And so when you take the dollar out, it's, you're, you're not bankrupt. And so in Hebrews 12, it says, Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And so the chastening, this is the love of God. This is the chastening of God. And so the chastening of God fits within this love of God. But if you critique, condemn, fuss, argue, yell, and then you love one time, the love gets lost in all of the argumentation. And so you want to flip that around to where you are an encourager, a motivator, motivating by grace, gratitude, thanksgiving, appreciation, love. And then every now and then you come and that's sin, you need to stop that. But whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And you want to imitate that, you want to imitate God that way in the discipline. Uh, And so, now sometimes our children sin so much (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like I can't keep up with the love because they're sinning so much. Um, but that's 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 true. That's true too. We just have to work really hard at encouraging and motivating by grace. Yeah, amen. You know, parenting. There's a lot of dying to self when you're parenting. Absolutely. And um, you know, if what we want to do a recap to remember, you know, to summarize what it's, it's mostly about again. Parenting and living humbly, relying on the Lord, trusting in His grace um, to empower us. Um, and then, as I remember, you have to be quiet first, then pray. And then what's the third one? Believe. Believe and then act. Yep, step out in faith. You, 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 you're, yeah, step you're, you're acting in faith. You're stepping out in faith. Uh, yeah, and then, yeah. Thank you so much, Rick, for uh, answering our questions. You're very uh, welcome. And uh, we hope you know if we have more questions, maybe we'll send them your way as well. Yeah, let's do this again sometime. Maybe your your friends can. Hey, I have more questions, and it doesn't have to be about you know the yeah. the bomb blast, and and it can be, and that's fine, uh, or any other thing pertaining to just doing soul care. Uh, love to yeah. do that whenever you want to. 
tour, you know, I wanted to do, to do it live, but I was too scared. It's the first time I do it, I was too scared to go live. So I said, we'll do this here, but maybe we'll do a live one next time. And maybe people will be sending their questions and we'll, we'll reply, you know. That would be great. Yeah. Thank you, Rick. All right. Be blessed. Take care. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.